How was your nap, Alex? Uh, amazing. <laughs> I like you. You're in the power nap zone. That was like a tight 25 minute nap, wasn't it? Sometimes you just got to do it. You know, you've got to set that alarm, put a podcast on and just zone out. And You know, sometimes I don't actually sleep at all, but it just gives me that time in a nice, quiet, dark room. And it's one of the luxuries of working from home. One of the big luxuries, actually. But don't call it meditation. Don't call it that because it's not meditation and snapping, which I think is that makes it socially acceptable. I, but I noticed there, it sounds like you got a bit of a regime, like you got like a process, a system, because you've got to, you've got to turn, get everything dark. You've got an alarm set. So that way you have peace of mind that you won't oversleep. And then it sounds like you've got a podcast, which means you're likely selecting podcasts that are complementary to napping. Is that true? Selecting the right podcast is a very tricky business to fall asleep to. It's got to be interesting enough that it stops my hamster wheel, but not so interesting as that it keeps it going. You know? Can I ask you something? Honestly, you got to be honest with me. Are are any of them my podcasts? <laughs> uh, over the years, TechSnap was a favorite of mine, although these <laughs> days it's far too interesting. With Wes and Jim, I can't, I can't do TechSnap anymore. That's been taken away from me. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, my go-to is ATP, actually. Mm. Get Jer- John Syracuse talking about his cheese grater and uh, take a nap. Those guys talking about taking their IMAX to the beach. I'm like, get a laptop. What are you doing? All right. Okay. All right. Let's not pull one of those. Uh, let's talk about some serious fundamentals today. You don't get too far into self-hosting without figuring out the basics of dynamic DNS typically and definitely reverse proxy. Do you agree? I certainly do. My ISP gives me an IP address that changes almost weekly. And ain't no one got time to remember those numbers. <laughs> and there are so many ways to make life easier, like at a software level. Even with my fairly expensive, fancy Comcast business connection, we have a dynamic IP that changes fairly often, or at least more often than I would expect. So you got to solve that problem if you want remote access. And then if you want to dive into the world of VMs, containers, or really even just load balancing and proper security, you have to sort out reverse proxying. So what do you think, Alex, about bringing in Mr. West Payne for this episode to chat about some of these topics? Because he's the one that's implemented some of this in production here at the network. I think that would be an excellent idea. Are you there, Wes? Hello, guys. Hello, Wes. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to sort out dynamic DNS and reverse proxy basics today. Um, And... Maybe we start with the core issue is ISPs give you a public IP address, but that IP address changes every now and then. And it sort of varies from ISP to ISP on how often that changes. I run a few boxes for my family. You know, my mum has got one in the north of England. My dad has one in the south. I have one here in Raleigh. And I needed a way to connect to all of these different places when these IP addresses change. And for me, that involves a few different things because each of my parents have different broadband providers. You know, one of them's running Synology NAS, the other one's running a proper Linux box, the other, and I'm running PFSense. And I need a way to try and get all of these things talking together. So there's a couple of services you can use. Um, DuckDNS is one example of that. And what DuckDNS does is you run a client on your LAN. So that could be DD client, or it could be something built into your firewall, such as PFSense, often has clients for this too. And that uh, takes your WAN IP address. So this is the public IP address. If you go to something like ipchicken.com, 
and you'll get your public IP address. <laughs> I use IP chicken too. That's amazing. That chicken is so funny. Did you get that from Dignation? Be honest now. Uh, I actually got it. This is going back a long time. When I was working in a hotel as an IT manager, uh, we had some consultants come in and they used it. And I thought the chicken was hilarious when I was 19. And that's... <laughs> IP chicken, baby. Anyways, not to interrupt, but I just wanted to celebrate that moment. So yeah, what I do is I have this client running on my LAN. It it scrapes my public WAN and then updates a DNS record with my DNS provider. I used Namecheap for a long time. I've recently just switched to Cloudflare. I don't really have any preference as to which is better, but um, Cloudflare had a nicer two-factor authentication uh, set up, so I felt like it was more secure. Don't know if that's true or not, but... We're using a, a Python project that has a bunch of DNS provider support that is maybe useful because I use that to roll our own dynamic DNS. So once I have this client running on my LAN and updating Cloudflare, what that enables me to do is instead of typing in the IP address, I can now type in a domain name. Now, a while ago, I bought my own domain name, uh, which is, you know, like google.com or something like that. Really? You got google.com? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was free. Funny that. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so I have a bunch of different uh, subdomains that I use. You know, for each each family member, I, I demote, denote them a couple of characters, and then I use that as the kind of naming convention for each person's house. Rather than using subdomains per service, which is quite common, such as, you know, plex.domain or bitwarden.domain or whatever it might be, I tend to go for, you know, location.domain.tld slash service. So I'm using subfolders instead of subdomains. Personal preference, you do whatever you like. But for me, that logical grouping makes more sense. What do you do, Wes? Well, actually, we've kind of just switched over here at JBU. Now we're mostly doing subdomains. And part of that may have something to do with the tooling we're using. But, you know, really, it doesn't matter unless you have a particularly picky backend app. I kind of want to go into that a little bit. Let's let's unpack that, as they say. So w- why did we switch to subdomains? Well, part of it is, um, you know, we like to use cockpit around here, um, or at least, hey, you certainly do, Chris. I think it's neat. It is neat. Uh, unfortunately, they've already reserved slash cockpit as a URL they use internally. Well, you could have done slash cock, but maybe that wouldn't be... Yeah, you know, I thought about that. We do have many humorous <laughs> domain names and URLs here, but I thought just cockpit dot... Domain made the most sense. Yeah, it's very consistent. Too. Mostly, I didn't want to have to remind you down the road of right. how to get to it. Well, that consistency helps everybody remember. So here's where this gets a bit interesting for me, right? I I have a few services which I break my convention for. Nextcloud is one. Uh, another one is my VPN. I have different subdomains for each VPN, even though they end up resolving often to the same IP address. Uh, it, it's weird how... I can't, now I think about it and I'm talking about it, I realize I, I, break, I break my own rules. <laughs> Why do you suppose that is? Is there a useful, is there a distinction? Are you breaking out some sort of um, rules or security or user base? Why have you broken it out like that? I don't have a good answer. Just over time? I, I, I guess I feel like it's more established if it's got its own subdomain versus a, you know, piggybacking off my house's or locations um, subdomain with a subfolder. I kind of get that. And that is often, right? I mean, if you have a subdomain, you depending on your setup, you may need to do additional configuration to create the subdomain and with a path-based URL, well, that's just at the, you know, the load balancer or reverse proxy level. So you can just add, naturally add it to the config. Now that Alex says that, though, I, I think that's my line too. A real legitimate service 
it deserves its own subdomain and an adjunct functionality gets like a slash thing on an existing domain. And that's generally how I break it down, which makes me think we should probably break a code AMD out to like a markdown dot whatever. I think you're right. Because mm-hmm. having a port number in a, a URL is so 2000. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those. We tried something really quick. And that, that was, I mean, I remember saying it when I spun yeah. it up. Like, well, let's do this a shot. We'll host our own just to throw things at it. And Three months later, we're using it daily. <laughs> As it happens. <laughs> you know, Linux server happens to make a Kodi MD Docker, by the way. Oh, great. Really? Don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Is that no, what we're I think using? we're just using the, the main upstream one at the moment. Oh, jeez. Should have just checked. Should always just check. You should always check to see if there's a Linux server IO image. Yeah, we have um, a handy little handy dandy image search thing at fleet.linuxserver.io, fleet of container images, anyway. Mm. Nice. Written by one of the guys uh, on the team from Devon. It, it's super, super useful tool. So you mentioned port numbers. I think the other aspect of this, just before we get to reverse proxy, is we should quickly cover port forwarding basics, because that's a big part of this too. Well, and before we get to that, even, I'd like to know how you update your, your dynamic DNS. I use DD client and PFSense. How do you do yours? Personally, I've used a few things. Um, at home, I think I'm using Hurricane Electric's DNS service, and they've got just a nice little API endpoint. So I have a script written with curl. Here at the studio, well, we're using Hover, and they didn't have an easy solution built in. Thankfully, there's a nice project called Lexicon, which is a Python library that has interfaces to a whole bunch of different DNS providers, so you can script something together real quick. This thing is so cool, Alex. So this this Python library has gone to all of the trouble of figuring out how to essentially interact with the web UIs of all of these different registrars and then you just provide it the information and it manages that. So it's it's really kind of in a way low tech, but so so beautiful. We use it here seamlessly. Right. And you know, it's um it, it has a nice API right from the command line. So you don't have to be a Python developer or anything. I just wrote a bash script and I, I prefer I can has IP.com personally. Guys, no chicken. But, no but chicken. Use, huh? use whatever you like. Uh, and then you just, you know, delete the old record, add the new record, and you're done. You know, a super useful tip from the command line is curl ifconfig.co, and that will get you a public IP address as well. Okay, that's nice. That is quick. We'll put a link to the Python project in the show notes because it's so handy. We run it here on a local server, and when things change, it does all of the legwork to log into Hover and update our uh, IP address. Also, tangentially, Hover, please create an API. That would be wonderful. No kidding. We love you a lot, but you really need an API. This is 2019 now. It's almost 2020, really, which is kind of freaky. And for anybody listening in the UK, they're using hover, not hover, because it took me a little while to work out that that's what you were saying. (laughs) Don't you mean (laughs) H-over? Yes. I'm sorry. Jerry's triggered right now. So a little bit of port forwarding basics. Port forwarding, boy, how to really describe this This isn't something we can walk you through because it's quite literally different for every particular vendor and even their different iterations of hardware components. So I have a fun story about how I got into port forwarding. I was 17 and I was at sixth form college in Winchester in England. I love this already. I wanted to access my computer at home that uh, from, from college because my computer at home didn't have any internet filters on. So I was using the RDP protocol and I exposed RDP to the internet, which, you know, what, what year was this? 2004, five. I didn't know any better. 
No, you're, you're talking to a guy who just hooked a modem up to one of the school computers and just had at it. It so. was a different time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I le- learned how to forward uh, ports that way. You know, so so port forwarding is pretty simple to understand. You you have a service running on your computer at home, which is behind a firewall. You want to be able to access that running service from outside your firewall. So all you're doing with a port forward is telling your firewall when it receives a request on port 3389 for remote desktop, for example, send it to this internal IP address on my network. So it goes from your public IP address, hits the firewall, firewall goes, what should I do with this? Does it match any of my rules? Yes, it matches this one. I'm going to send it to 192.168.1.2 or whatever it is. And then your system on your LAN will receive that request and you should be able to connect to to what's happening. Very well said. And analogy could be you call into a, a phone system from a public phone number and then you get routed to an internal phone. And the router maintains a list of MAC addresses and requests and where things came from and where they're going. And it does that, that sort of middleman work. And uh, it's very transparent and it's very fast. And it's the basics that you have to go through to get access to something that's on your LAN from the internet. And each different machine or configuration will be a slightly different. Alex and I are both really big fans of PFSense, and we'll probably talk about that in a future episode, just dedicated, because it's so great. But once you understand those basics, you understand why you have to bother with your router. You need to get your login. You need to make sure it stays up to date. You got you to gotta make sure this thing's protected, and you have to learn how to do port forwarding. But it does mean, then, that if you get excited about some random project and just spin it up on your laptop, well, not just anyone can access it right away. There is an argument to be had which says you shouldn't open any ports whatsoever, though. I agree. You could totally make that argument. You could put it all behind a VPN. We kind of do, like, a bit of both. Well, some services that we feel maybe just based on our own sort of gut instinct will feel maybe they're more robust, they're more commonly public. We might turn those on, like a Nextcloud. Right, that is a prime example. But something that is um, maybe not as publicly facing often, like a like a Usenet downloader or something like that, you might not publicly expose. Really probably just don't expose unless you have to. Nextcloud's a case of we have a variety of users, not all of whom need more direct access to our system. So that's kind of an outlier, but basically everything else is behind some sort of more controlled access. Do you think you could argue, Alex, that even in the case of that kind of stuff, it's always worth just using a VPN or something? I think it depends entirely on your risk profile. I tend to fall somewhere in the pragmatism side of risk, which is I'll open port 80 and port 443 um, and 32400 so that I can get Plex working. Those are the three ports that are almost always open in my firewalls. Um, oh, I guess 22 must be open as well for SSH. I almost always eventually open up SSH. It might take me a little while. Like, I'll wait till I really have to do it. And then something comes along and I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, I run SSH on a different port from 22. But then I use the port forwarding rules to convert it to 22 for the local system. So that's a nice thing you can do with port forwarding as well. WireGuard for me sort of changes it a bit because it's so quick to fire up a WireGuard interface. I've had the problem where I've got a WireGuard set up into the studio and I'll leave it on sometimes. And because it just immediately reestablishes, suddenly I'm routing out through the universe for no reason. On my Fedora box, it's broken right now. I tried to mod probe the WireGuard module and I just got like some sort of like kernel module mismatch error. That's why we need it upstreamed already. I know. I know. It's so great. If you've heard a lot of hype about it, the great thing is, is from a from a user perspective, it's it's as quick and easy as just 
turning on a network interface and turning off a network interface. And that's so sweet because all of my different networks have a slightly different IP scheme. So I can just turn it on and then I get to all of the different stuff by going to their IPs and on different subnets. And it works so great that I, I literally forget sometimes to turn it off. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably just turn that off now, like a day later. And it it, it like resumes between sleep. And you even found out you moved from your place downtown. It came up to the studio, and WireGuard reconnected. Yep, it just boom. Just yeah. You, but that's a total like IP change, like LAN IP. I no- was on that network, and it was still routed through <laughs> WireGuard. The experience is reminiscent of Mosh. If you've ever used that for SSH, yes, Mosh is also really great. Anyways, that's that's port forwarding uh, in its basics. We'll have a little bit more info and in some of the things we just talked about in the show notes. The thing is, right, so even if you do use a VPN, this is um, going to be a bit of a sales pitch for reverse proxies. Even if you are using a VPN, I still don't want to remember port numbers. Running a service colon port, for example, is it's just, I can't be doing with it. Okay, so reverse proxies. This is solving a big problem. Uh, what's a what's a great way to explain to people that don't understand what, what reverse proxy is, what it is? The reverse proxy is one of those projects that you put off for years, and then when you finally get to doing it, you realize actually it was pretty simple all along. Yeah, I mean, really, I think when most people think about reverse proxy, they probably think of Nginx. That's always been my experience. However, recently... More and more people are using traffic or traffic in production. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Well, they say traffic. Do they? Uh-huh. Right in the docs, it says traffic. Oh, well, good. Good, then, then that's great. <laughs> a reverse proxy in and of itself is a, it's just a web server, generally speaking from the internet, but not always. In its simplest form, you make a web request on port 443. You've created a port forwarding rule to forward all port 443 requests to the IP address of the system running the reverse proxy. The reverse proxy then has a bunch of rules in it which tell the web server what to do when it receives a certain request. So, you know, each web request looks different. It could have a cookie in it. It could have certain headers set. It could be at a certain URL. There's a whole bunch of clever rules that you can set in reverse proxies so that you only have to expose one box to the internet. This is also a really straightforward way for load balancing to work. Yep. If you are familiar with, you know, ELBs in AWS, for example, a lot of that technology is just using stuff like HA proxy and Nginx under the hood anyway. Mm. Yeah, they repackage it. <laughs> so that's why it's really good to understand those fundamentals. Well, and a lot of these, you know, software techniques have evolved in basically stolen jobs from what previously were sit- hard pieces of hardware sitting in a rack. Very expensive pieces of hardware, too, as a matter of fact. Very, very expensive pieces of hardware with yearly support contracts and whatnot. So, yeah, really, when you look at it in that regard, the cloud versions of these are not that cost prohibitive. It also means you can kind of, you know, have another layer of abstraction. So instead of having to worry about how you configure, you know, how you get to all these different apps within each app, which might have a different configuration format, you can sort of centralize that at your reverse proxy. Yeah. And we really use it, and most people use it, in a, in a very straightforward way to just connect the outside world with applications that are running inside containers that don't have public IP addresses. And that's, a, that's probably one of the most common use cases for reverse proxy today, and probably one of the more common use cases for our audience, I would imagine. Yeah. A super cool thing you can do with Docker, actually, is... You have a Nginx uh, running in a container. You don't want to open 
any more ports uh, on you know a local container than you absolutely have to. You don't want to map any more volumes or any. You don't want to give that container any more permissions than it absolutely needs to run. And so the really nice thing using the Docker networking is you can reference other containers just using the container name as a DNS entry. And because the Docker network doesn't require ports to be opened, it has permission to see inside and do everything it needs to do. And all of this happens transparently to the end user. So you can just hit a URL, which is my.service.domain.tld slash service. And it's as if you went to 192.168 IP address colon port. It's, it's exactly the, you will receive exactly the same content as if you did that transparently. I think before we go too far into this too, I want to make sure um, we're not losing anybody. If I was coming into this right now, I might think that maybe there's like a reverse proxy D or something that you use. It, we should be clear that this is a functionality that s- several different software projects provide, including the classic NGINX. Um, but there's others like Traffic, who I mentioned earlier, and you've put that in production in a couple of different places for us. Why did you choose that over NGINX? Because I want to make it clear to the audience that there are multiple ways to solve this problem, like so many things in open source. There's several options available, and you pick this one. Yeah, I mean, I could be. You could use Apache. You can use other, you know, more modern options that exist. One thing that kind of sold me about traffic. Well, for starters, I just wanted to play with it. I was curious. We had some new deployments. I thought, well, none of these are super critical at the moment. We can afford to evaluate some new technology here, and. Traffic just plays very well with things that are running in containers. And I, I wanted a system that would allow me to still define some sort of, you know, some static endpoints that I knew that were running, for instance, cockpit, but being able to have stuff not in containers, not automatically be configured. But for the rest, with traffic, the model is you just add some some labels on your images, which are just some annotations that go on there with extra metadata. And you tell traffic, like, yes, enable this. Here's the port that you should grab, and you can configure, like, do you want this to be a subdomain or a path-based route, depending on, on what you want? And then traffic is listening, talking to Docker or Kubernetes or a bunch of, you know, bunch of other platforms, pulls that information in, and then dynamically adds that new service for you. Neat. Does that break if I change the name of a container? I mean, as long as you keep all the labels matched up, no. That is so cool. So you cool. can just tear it down, spin it up. And there's right. tons of other stuff that does this. I just thought that's a nice functionality, and it worked very well for our particular use case. Hmm. hmm. That is really nice. The only thing that I don't like about traffic is it mounts the Docker socket. Yes, it does, indeed. You can do so um, read-only, but uh, it still needs access to go pull from stuff, yeah. Right, because it's got to get that info. Exactly. It needs that data. So there's some security risk there. But because it does that, it has a few neat, uh, few neat tricks up its sleeve. So it can automatically watch for new containers stopping and starting. Do you know? It can automatically figure out uh, how to route different requests just based on those labels. And you don't even have to restart it, which is one of my bigger complaints with using Nginx as a, a reverse proxy. I also like that it has just like modern functionality. So HTTP2 is supported right out of the box and WebSockets, which Cockpit uses. You don't have to do anything special or have to account for it. It just, it just works. So Wes, seeing as I have a traffic guru on the line, I, I wondered uh, if I... So a lot of this works and scales really well when it's just one box on my LAN. If I wanted to expand things a little bit and have, you know, a NUC running Nextcloud and uh, another NUC, say, running Home Assistant and something else running Plex somewhere else. Can I have traffic running on a different instance that doesn't have access to the Docker socket and still 
have all of this stuff work well. Now, you would need another way to go get all the information. It has support for a lot of providers. I don't know that that would work. You could manually define, you know, define all the routes, of course. You just need a bridge that would let it pull that information out of Docker somehow, I guess. What's the story with Traffic's web UI? The web UI is handy. I mean, I don't know that you would leave it running in production necessarily, or maybe just internally. Um, I found it very useful just to, as I was learning how to configure traffic and get started using it, because it just pops up. You can enable it, go visit it, um, helps you helps you troubleshoot and shows you nice, because they've got an idea of entry points and sort of front ends, which are, you know, like a logical entry that sort of defines your your service, and then back ends behind it, which you might like load balance across or do something mm. there. So it can make it clear, like, which pieces it's seen you might have problems with it, you know, actually getting the right access to Docker at first or something, and it'll be clear in the web UI. Oh, yeah, I could see that being very use- useful for starting up. Um, also, it has an API to integrate with Kubernetes and other orchestrations, so that's kind of... Yeah, it'll play with Amazon ECS as well. You can plug it into stuff like etcd or Zookeeper. So if you were using one of those systems, yeah. then it'll work. Seems like Kubernetes is the blockchain of this space, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, although, really, with some, you know, real nice advantages where blockchain is sort of like still people are sorting that out. <laughs> Kubernetes is actually getting deployed. <laughs> and, and traffic may be, you know, a tool that you could help if you were sort of doing some stuff in Docker and starting to play with Kubernetes. It might be a technology you could use to bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see a lot of stuff with HAProxy because uh, OpenShift ships with um, with HAProxy, but yeah, I'll be interested. Maybe I should try traffic out with a, a local Kubernetes cluster. Um, but anyway, like, so, you know, we were talking about different reasons as to why people wanted to use reverse proxies. I mean, for me, the biggest one is no more port numbers. And we haven't really touched on the security benefits uh, yet. And for me, um, one of the most important ones is that any proxy I'm using should have a way of doing automated TLS stuff using Let's Encrypt. Does traffic do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's built right in. Um, it. It can store it in some fancy backends if you want. Otherwise, it defaults to a JSON file. This has advantages and disadvantages. It's not kind of the the normal f- format you're used to. So you, if you need to grab that cert out of there and use it for another application, then there, you probably have to use a script to pull it out. But it is just a JSON file, so that's pretty easy. Let's Encrypt has, has really changed the internet. It was something which you really, you know, you used to have to pay real money for, and now I can just SSL all the things. It's great. It is really great. Yeah, one of the things I loved about traffic in particular was how easy that was. I mean, it's it's four lines of in my config file, and, you know, most of that's just like, do, do you want to use HTTPS, and what's your email? For those of you who are of the Nginx persuasion, uh, the Linux server team make and maintain an Nginx Let's Encrypt, we call it Let's Encrypt image, which has baked in support for automated Let's Encrypt certificates. And it runs a cron job every night, so it will automatically renew certificates for you. Uh, and it just handles everything f- that you need, and you just uh, configure it using environment variables. That's great. That is great. That is really a nice way to get started. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And coming up in a future episode, we're going to talk a lot more about containers and Docker and try and break down some of the mythology around that sort of stuff. Try and um, give you some tips and tricks that we've learned over the years, stuff like Docker Compose maybe. And uh, Chris loves a GUI. (laughs) Hey now, hey now, I haven't used a GUI in a while, but you're right. We'll talk a little bit about that as well as what the fundamentals are, what the difference between a Docker container is and a container container. So that'll be in a future extras. Plus, in the main self-hosted show, in the regular self-hosted show, we'll be discussing how we use this stuff 
in our day-to-day lives more as not just what we cover today, but also as it evolves. Because I think there'll be more containers we're deploying as the future goes on, Alex. It seems to be. <laughs> I've always got more. <laughs> and you just bought a Pi 4, right? I bought two accidentally. We're going to be all about trying to do stuff that's affordable as well. You know, um, one of the things in that chat with Wendell that we had was we that was that was looking at massive servers, right? With big budgets and not enterprise, but it was more enterprise level stuff than... Business level. Yeah, small business, that sort of thing, right? And uh, what we're going to try and do with the pie stuff is bring it back down to earth a little bit, give people something that, you know, is not going to cost you a thousand bucks as an entry price, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do check out self-hosted episode three. You can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. And I'm at Chris LAS and get more extras. Extras.show slash subscribe. 